everybody! Welcome to a new episode of the Womenhood and International Relations Podcast. I'm your host, Natalia Bonilla. And for today's episode, we will be addressing Feminist Foreign Policy Conversations North and South. This is a summary of the free webinar that we launched on the Spanish language on Política Exterior Feminista, Conversaciones Norte y Sur, um, that we shared on September 9th, 2021. And I believe that someday, soon, I hope, I will start doing uh, free webinars in the English language. But meanwhile, I'm still, you know, learning how to best address this information in the English language. It's not the same when I speak in my native language because I feel more, you know, confident and more at ease. And it's not the same to record a podcast episode, which is why I'm doing this, than to speak in front of a camera, in front of other people in the English language. So bear with me, I'm getting there. <laughs> um, and I know someday, very soon, I will be able to start giving all these classes and all these courses in the English language with a lot of confidence and a lot of ease. But meanwhile, audio, is working for me now. <laughs> um, okay, so let's begin. Um, I think that it's important to start with whenever I give classes on um, feminist foreign policy or feminist theory applied to IR specifically to talk about the leading up to the feminist foreign policy because it's easy to get distracted into the models and what Sweden did and France did and what Canada is saying and what Mexico is saying, you know, like it's easy to go on the route of the case studies without acknowledging all the different um, work or the different types of work that took place domestically and internationally in order for those policy um, type of policy to be launched. So. So in that case, we can resume many of the work on several points of action. The World Conferences on Women, the one in Mexico City in 1975, in Copenhagen in 1980, in Nairobi in 1985, and the Beijing in 1995, were pillared for the United Nations state members to address the situation of women on different levels, on different areas of interest, from you know land owners uh, ownership to economic empowerment to um, how is it wedding um, <laughs> marriage and you know marriage type of you know conversations to um, sexual violence to development and more. But beyond the World Conferences on Women, we also saw at the international state other instruments from the Convention to the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women in 1979 to the International Conference on Human Rights in Vienna in 1993 to the Convention de Belém do Pará in 1994 to the Roma Statute in 1998 and I think the most emblematic one that people keep referring to beyond the, the Beijing platform in 1995 was the resolution 1325 approved in 2000 by the UN Security Council, which led to the creation of the uh, Women, Peace and Security Agenda and the consequence of uh, national action plans in more than 50 countries um, or state members, <laughs> for <laughs> to be precise. Um, this is important because it feels as if all the work that we are going to be sharing here on, on this episode, but also in previous episodes on feminist theory applied to IR was, you know, focus only on the academic side as if nothing, you know, on the international level or at the United Nations or at the international community was happening. And it's not, you know, like all the work that is being done in academia, in civic society, in movements and you know, or, or grassroots organizations and more 
it's it's being reflected too. It take it has a reflection on what the international community is talking to, and vice versa. You know what the international community is talking to can influence as well local movements and local organizations. So, in that spirit of the personal is political, the political is international. Whenever we are addressing feminist foreign policy. Um, models or feminist theory applied to IR, we cannot place them in a vacuum as if, oh, this is a trend now <laughs> and now everybody's talking about it and we should pay attention because everybody's talking about it. No, this is part of a long-standing feminist work and it's important that we acknowledge that. Um, many of my other colleagues can, you know, list more other, you know, like uh, instruments and laws and conventions to talk about. But for the purpose of keeping it short, I'm just, you know, uh, highlighting these. And if we continue that road of what's happening at the international level, we can find some staggering statistics that makes us understand more the need to address feminism at the international level. And we are going to get to the feminist part in a bit, but I want to um, share with you some statistics to explore. Um, these, the majority of these are from the United Nations and others are from the United States. So I invite you, wherever you are in the world, to look for your local statistics to what's happening in your own country to understand better your own context. In average, or on average, in the United States, one over four experts on national security and um, foreign policy are women. One in four. 13 out of 15 top think tanks in the United States are directed or led by men, according to a 2005 study by Media Matters for America. 87% of all the interviews done on international media, on uh, international news or uh, case studies, are given to uh, male politic uh, analysts, according to a study done by Foreign Policy Interruption, Interrupted 2016. On average, women are just only 24% of parliamentary leaders around the globe, according to UN Women Data from 2018-2019. By January 2019, only 11 women were leaders of states or heads of state around the world. That means 5% of the 193 state members of the United Nations. If we talk about peace and the Women, Peace and Security Agenda, which we have recently addressed, according to a 2017 report by UN Women, in peace processes from 1990s to 2000s, women were only representing 2,000% of the mediators, 8% of negotiators, and 5% of the witnesses and signings of uh, signatories of the peace agreements. And if we talk about, you know, economical terms, women are placed as two-thirds of the world's poorest population. And that's completely heartbreaking if we take in consideration that we are, women are half of the world's uh, population. So we are half the world's population, but only, but, but we comprise two-thirds of the world's poorest. And... If we talk about uh, economic empowerment, the World Economic Forum has said that by empowering economically women and you know achieving gender equality could lead to more than 12 trillion dollars uh, US dollars to the um, global economy. However, many uh, structural, cultural, and patriarchal <laughs> barriers around the world are you know, preventing this reality to be possible. So we have many things to talk about from the peace to the security, to the representation, to the quota, to the social dimension and to the economic dimension. And even the economic one is not the biggest, you know, dissuasive or, you know, like the biggest reason for states to talk about gender equality. And 
that's something that with feminist theory applied to IR, we start learning more, understanding why. And one of the key things that we find in preparation to understand the models of feminist foreign policy are how international relations as a field of study are blind to gender, not neutral to gender. And that's something that we can find from the works of Diane Tickner and her uh, feminist perspective to the political realist uh, six principles of Hans Morgenthal, to the work of Wendy Brown on finding the man in the state, to the work of uh, Charlotte Hooper in Manly States, or the work of Jackie Chu, Christine Sylvester, and many others on gender uh, and international relations and more. Um, in feminist theory applied to IR, one of the core um, things that we study is how states' behavior in the international system are, is constructed through uh, unequal gender relations. And why these uh, power relations are unequal, who says that it should be unequal, and how is this inequality of power affecting the lives of individuals, specifically the lives of women? Um, it was Cynthia Loe, one of the experts um, of feminist theory applied to IR, um, gender studies specifically in IR, that um, attributed this question, like where are the women? From her work, not only in uh, maneuvers, her book on war, but also on banana speeches and bases. And this great question of where are the women in IR plays a new dimension to explore our internalized um, androcentrism and anthropocentrism. Um, that's something that. I invite you to check on the episode Why Feminist Theory <laughs> Applied to IR Matters. Um, that's episode 21. I will list it below because we talk about all these uh, specific scholars. But uh, for the purpose of today's episode, I want to keep it short in order to lead to the feminist foreign policy models. Once we start understanding unequal power relations and we start understanding the conception of power as these um, masculine uh, or, or masculine perception or notion um, with masculine values from not only recently but from ancient Greece and the beginning of political science as uh, a field specifically back then it was a philosophy but, <laughs> but many of us had to study Aristotle and Plato <laughs> when we entered college um, that's when the the main attributes of power as this masculine um, concept started taking force. And then in the, um, in the modern um, world, in specifically in the 20th century, we can trace on the 15th, but on the 20th century, just to bring it closer to today, <laughs> um, we could see that the state's behavior the state's administration of resources and, and the way that it was um, um, creating discourses, legacy, identity, and more were not conducive to more security of the people or more advancement of the people, but actually working outside of it, you know? And we can talk how feminist theory uh, places a huge criticism or a huge critique to realist theory, which is the dominant way of looking at the world. And that's not something that feminists, because it's led by women, talk about, but also something that scholars from um, masculinities and queer theory also address. Um, we can see how the negative impact of wars on women as well as other um, vulnerable communities and groups are mostly um, gendered. And, and it, it's, it, it, 
it seeks sorry it seeks to prevail or or to promote or perpetuate the subordination of some groups considered to be feminine in order for the masculine to um, continue uh, dominating and that's something that um, we saw specifically with the work of Jan Bethke Elstein, which a lot of people may be seeing like, Natalia, why do you keep always talking about her? Because this specific work, Women and War, really was for me an eye-opener because it was very simple, directed, and I could see it like on... Of course, in order to have someone weak and 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 someone strong is like the principles of psychology one defines itself in front of the other so if if you want a, a courageous soldier or someone that's very powerful then you need someone else to take the role of the victim to take the role of the powerless in order for the powerful to feel powerful you know because it's how psychology uh, this, the, the mind works and is the patriarchal mind that needs to be contested because we wonder through feminist theory, constructivist theory, reflectivist theory and even queer theory applied to IR if this patriarchal mindset can be, um, how is it, overruled and can be said like is there another way that we can relate to one another without division, without category, which, without hierarchy. And that's something to explore further. Um, we see it in the work of Jeff Hearn with the men in the public eye and the missing men in IR. We see it in the work of uh, the man questioning international relations by Marisa Salisky and Jane Papart and many more that actually, you know, talk about this gender neutrality and how we look at international relations as a field that was created for men and implemented the, these policies by men in the uh, decision-making, but we don't contest them. It's the way that things are done. They're normalized, they're usual, and they're official. And women, when they enter the international relations field or the diplomacy field, continue reproducing these internalized um, macho culture or, or this internalized uh, patriarchal mindset and how can we achieve a feminist world where we are looking for feminism through the lenses of hierarchy and not through the lenses of equality where these binary divisions or these um, good versus bad or, or better versus worse do not um, shine in, in in our looking for or per perception of equality, you know, which leads to the big question on what is feminism? And this is a question that not a lot of people ask themselves. <laughs> We take it for granted that we are just feminists because it sounds cool, because, you know, let's place a, a purple, um, you know, like t-shirt and whatever. But it's, it's more like there's the whole world of feminism to understand first before addressing a feminist foreign policy. And I'm trying to keep it short here. I don't want to stand too much in this episode, but it's important for me to say that feminism at the core as an idea seeks the equality of social, political, and economic realms of women and men. This was when it was created a century ago, <laughs> okay? That's the core idea of feminism. However, that was a, a century ago. In a century, <laughs> many things have happened. And one of the many things that have happened is that as people 
understood the idea, they created knowledge around the idea and they created their own ideas, theories, and social political movements. And sometimes we address feminism as this, you know, fixed term or this ideology or, you know, like we use very weird charged terms without understanding that every country community person is its own world and has its own understanding of what it should be. So ideas can change through time. That's important to acknowledge as well. Um, back then, the whole conversation when feminism came aboard was on equality. Since then, it has moved not only in terms of contesting equality, I may be thinking about equity is better word than equality. Who knows? Let's you know talk about it to understand that hey, feminism should not only be about seeking equality for women and men, we need to seek equality for everybody because there are people that do not identify as women and men. So it's important to understand that feminism, as many other terms, ideas, belief systems, etc., is subject to change. And people have their own interpretations of what X, Y, Z, um, you know, term means. At the core, it seeks equality. It seeks to demonstrate the importance of women of, you know, having the life that they want to live, to reveal how they have been um, historically oppressed and conditioned to inferiority in front of men. Um, it's at the core, feminism is seeking as well to eradicate sexual and gender violence and to promote the liberation and, and the sovereignty of our bodies of people. And as the how, that's the challenge because we cannot talk of the idea when we are addressing the how. We can talk about feminisms, many forms of feminisms, from liberal to post-colonial to social, Marxist to radical and more. It is through these lenses of understanding that feminism is plural at this point, and it can be um, subjected to many interpretations, etc., that we could see a gradual work in the past three decades. From a conversation in the 1990s on can a state be feminist, which was, you know, taking form in Nordic countries and as well as Australia, to the Women, Peace and Security Agenda in the 2000s to the uh, creation of the Feminist Foreign Policy or the announcement of the foreign, Feminist Foreign Policy in Sweden in the 2010s. All this work has been documented as well uh, by many authors, even by uh, Francis Fukuyama, who said in the 1998 in his essay to... Uh, uh, women and the evolution of world politics in foreign affairs. Um, he also, you know, after talking about the end of the world or the perceived end of the world after the world, the Cold War ended, that, you know, this could happen because it has taken form. But the conversations has, um, how is it, shifted through time to nowadays, in the 2021, having the executive secretary of the CEPAL, the um, Economic um, Commission for Latin America and the Caribbean, or the ECLAC, I think it's in the English language, that by, re by acknowledging that every foreign policy should be feminist, we could achieve gender equality in the whole Latin American Caribbean region. That's 2021, <laughs> but it, it's been a full spectrum of many things happening in very 
different levels. So we can have the first feminist foreign policy approach and announcement in Sweden in the 2014, taking the world by storm. And there are two, maybe three factors that we need to take in consideration. First is that Sweden has been a country that since the 1980s forward, um, the strong commitment to gender equality was perceived and promoted at the domestic level. The 1990s was a decade where in Sweden specifically, the corporations, the private sector, you know, and the civic society, as well as, you know, some conversations on the political level were chiming on how to promote gender equality, how to achieve that um, milestone. And they started doing some changes at, you know, companies, corporations, and, and at the economic side of it. Um, and that led to a growing interest that the policymakers and the, pol the politics were a, a reflection of what the people were already experiencing or were already wanting and needing. Um, so when the 2014 election, not only at the European Union, but also at domestic level in Sweden take place, the party that won, won over that specific item. Like, it's not about we want gender equality, it's that we can form a feminist government because we are reaching that point. So it's a long time coming. The other aspect that we can talk about feminist foreign policy in Sweden was the fact of the figure of Margot Wallström, the foreign affairs minister. Specifically, when we are studying international relations, we are taught that there are three levels of study, the individual, the state, and the system. Um, we can address them separately or we can, you know, create a comparison. In the specific case of Margaret Wallström, if we focus only on her figure as a case study, we could see and find an, an hypothesis <laughs> that, you know, if any other person that did not have the experience, the education, the commitment, to women's rights as she did from a domestic level in politics that she has been you know, working on to an international level, not only working at the European Union, but also as ambassador of one of the um, sexual violence um, in conflicts uh, programs from the United Nations. We can say that she was someone that when she created the, pro the policy and added the word feminist, she stood by it. So that gave it a lot of strength. The question is whether if it would be any other person, could we have, you know, maybe doubted <laughs> or be like, ah, this looks like a stunt, this looks like politics, etc. But because she walked the talk, she has been, you know, consistent in her work and in her values when she delivered the proposal or she led this proposal out of the word feminist. You know, people actually listened. And then the third aspect of the feminist foreign policy of Sweden that actually made a mark and transformed, helped transform the way that we are perceiving international affairs is that they took a bold move of incorporating feminist values to all the areas of foreign policy, such as trade, cooperation or development, humanitarian assistance, etc., to the um, diplomacy and defense. That's the proposal. In the implementation, we can talk about things that did not work out, but in the proposal, they did a bold move that even today, no other country, not even Canada, not even France, not even Mexico, and subsequently Luxembourg and Spain that have joined this year, 2021, have not done, which is to actually incorporate feminism or feminist values to all areas of foreign policy. Um, that's specific to explain um, the, the different um, 
the, the impactful level of that specific policy and how it inspired a movement of organizations, of think tanks, of, you know, uh, s scholars that actually focus on, oh, hey, maybe it was not possible in 1990s to talk about feminist state, but can we talk about feminist foreign policy? Yes. However, we could see as Canada, France, Mexico, Luxembourg, Spain, as well as conversations in, in the United States, Germany, South Africa, and now India, um, that these foreign policy models were not actually feminist, or were they? That's the big question, you know, like, is feminism or feminist values being ingrained? Can the state take feminism and continue colonial practices or imperialistic practices? Is it a political move? Is it a progressive move? What is it that they're trying to do? You know, like all these conversations, um, which leads to a question of interpretations and administration's national interest. We cannot forget that governments in states as a structure, the state as a structure, when governments arise in the state as a structure, they perceive international relations through national interests. And that still is a very realist view of the world, which once again is the one that predominates international affairs. And I cannot stress this enough because it's, then people are blaming, you know, like foreign policy makers or lobbies or, you know, like <laughs> people because it's like, why do you say these feminists but you're not acting as feminists? Because the lenses of which they view the world through these conversations of national interest, of, you know, uh, national security and, and, you know, state security and more, state sovereignty and many other um, things are ingrained in patriarchal values. It is. And sometimes we overlook that because feminist world is so exciting. Like, que bueno, no? It's like, how happy, I'm so happy that they have you know, launch a feminist uh, foreign policy is better than not having one, but then we get like, oh, but it's feminist, but it does, it's not acting feminist, which leads to a whole different conversation on why there are many definitions on feminist foreign policy models and why are people so keen on learning where is the net going to be, like who's gonna be the next state <laughs> that's gonna launch a feminist foreign policy everybody's on the lookout to see what are they gonna pay attention to because you know france paid attention to gender equality and ending sexual violence in northern africa you know canada wanted to end poverty and you know empower economically women and you know mexico wanted to address gender gender equality in the foreign affairs ministry like this is exciting because each country is you know, choosing what they want to do, and you never know. It's a surprise until they launch it. So once they launch it, then we can, you know, like, critic, <laughs> criticize. Um, but anyway, there have been many efforts to define what a feminist foreign policy should look like, from the Center for Feminist Foreign Policy in the UK to the International Center for Research on Women. There have been many think tanks, organizations that have taken you know, the leap of faith and have done their research and consultations on what a framework should look like in order to be feminist. Um, I'm going to list some of the, um, uh, how is it, briefs and reports down below in the description box for you to check it out. The Center for Feminist Foreign Policy in UK defines a feminist foreign policy, and I'll quote, a framework which elevates the everyday life experience lifts experience of marginalized communities to the forefront and provides a broader and deeper analysis of global issues. It takes a step outside the black box approach of traditional foreign policy thinking and its focus on military force, violence and domination by offering an alternate and intersectional rethinking of security from the viewpoint of the most marginalized. 
It is a multidimensional policy framework that aims to elevate women's and marginalized groups' experiences and agency to scrutinize the destructive forces of patriarchy, capitalism, racism, and militarism. Closing quote. The International Center for Research on Women has also another um, definition, which I quote here. Feminist foreign policy is a policy of a state that defines its interaction with other states and movements in a manner that prioritizes gender equality and enshrines the human rights of women and other traditionally marginalized groups, allocates significant resources to achieve that vision, and seeks through its implementation to disrupt patriarchal and male-dominated power structures across all of its levers of influence, aid, trade, defense, and diplomacy, informed by the voices of feminist activists, groups, and movements, closing quote. So as you can see, there are many definitions, many interpretations of what feminism is, what feminism should look like at the state level, and how a feminist foreign policy should look like, and how it should be implemented, and more. Which leads to why this word, the F word, is so controversial <laughs> that you know we cannot see a, a, a formal definition for everything. That's the long-term route is that in the future the feminist foreign policy would not even be the word feminist would not be there. It would already be feminist. However, we are not understanding the fact that the state's identity, structure, and behavior isn't feminist. And that's something that we covered in the webinar in the Spanish language on can a state be feminist? Um, there have been many attempts and many conversations to have that, um, but specifically in this case, I don't want to like steer away because I know it will create um, a tsunami of criticism um, and also a lot of rejection because when we start asking the question can a state be feminist a lot of women that go to the structure of the state either as policymakers either as you know political um, candidates or you know working at the government or the public sector they they reject the notion of of a possibility that it cannot be and they reject it because now they have achieved in many cases not all of them but in many cases they have achieved a position of power that it they will lose in case that they recognize they cannot do something to change the structure which is still the idealism um, specifically, we saw it in Argentina <laughs> lately with the latest government of uh, Fernandez, but <laughs> that's a whole conversation that we can have for another episode. <laughs> um, but anyway, lastly, to end today's episode, what are some north-south conversations on these foreign policy models? The biggest question that we can find is how feminists are they? Are they really feminists? Or are they not really feminists? And we can find it on um, many uh, feedback reports from uh, and surveys and research that has been done not only from the Center for Feminist Foreign Policy. One of them is how feminist is the Swedish feminist foreign policy, which addressed specifically how this 2014-2018 uh, model um, barely addressed the whole conversation on defense and security and 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 how Sweden is one of the largest exports of arms around the world and how, you know, feminism and militarism, that's a whole conversation to have. Um, we also have uh, reports from Canada, feminist foreign policy, specifically international assistance uh, policy. Um, and this report uh, created by the Feminist Foreign Policy Working Group, what we heard, released on January 2021. I will list it down below in the description box. We also have uh, From Seeds to Roots Trajectories uh, Towards Feminist Foreign Policy from the International Women's Development Agency in Australia. We list it down below. 
We also have a report from India, from the Cooper 9 Initiative, Understanding Feminist Foreign Policy, a view from India, which we have featured in a previous episode. I will list it down below. And we have other articles on um, how transnational feminism should look like at the um, global stage, but also what are the hegemonic patterns, colonial practices, and imperialistic views, and Euro-American white lenses views on international affairs, and more. Um, once again, all will be listed on the recommended uh, reading section of this episode. I invite you to check it out and I invite you to explore it because that's amazing to just dig deep. So out of the many things that we can find beyond this question, how feminist are these models? <laughs> we can find inconsistencies in the definitions not only in the definitions, but also in the proposals and also in the implementation of these proposals. Incoherence and lack of transparency, of lack of accountability that can be found in feminist foreign policy and domestic policies in regards to gender equality or ending gender-based violence or ending um, socio-economical inequalities. We can also find a whole conversation, once again, that's going to be another episode, on uh, unequal power relations between states, uh, civil society, and marginalized groups, something that is similar to the matrix, <laughs> um, you know, like the matrix struggle, you know, between those who want their voices to be heard by the state and those who don't or want to find power through it. That's a whole conversation to have. Um, the predominance of um, Euro-American lenses and, uh, once again, white people constructing the narratives and the proposals and the behaviors and the frameworks of what a feminist foreign policy, a good one, <laughs> should look like. Um, and the lack of funds, uh, lack of adequate funds and marginalization of programs uh, directed to women. There's a whole different conversation as well on gender perspective plus that um, right now is taking force because we cannot only address you know the binary, we need to address all people regardless of their gender and sex. And also this whole conversation on the, the political use of the word feminist and the dissonance between uh, militarism and feminism in regards not only to this whole conversation on international security and human security, but also the women, peace and security agenda. And this is something interesting because the dissonance that people refer sometimes to militarism and feminism is often connected to peace, but they're not connected to, to, to violence. And, and I want to clarify this in case it sheds some light to someone out there. Feminisms and pacifist movements, feminist movements and pacifist movements have similar approaches. And sometimes, depending on the feminism, they can be connected and can work together. Yes. However, Almost all feminisms that I've known about and I've read about, I don't know every feminism that is outside in the world, but all that I have read today, at up to this date, from my own experience, I can say that they reject militarism not because we want a peaceful world <laughs> and, you know, like... Peace is, you know, a women's issue and we should all be living a harmonious world. No, it's because militarism in reinforces unequal power relations. By taking guns, men taking guns oftentimes and using these guns to against women and women not being able to carry guns, not women not being able to have the same access to... I'm not saying that you know, we are advocating for women to, you know, take a lot of arms and, you know, create nuclear disaster, etc. But is the fact that this industry or militarism values not only promote hegemonic masculinity, which is something that feminism contests, 
but also this masculine view of power through the use of guns and using violence to exercise domination. And that's why feminisms that I've read about and I've learned about, I don't know every feminism, but the ones that I have read about are against militarism because of that. Not only because women are peaceful by nature, not only because of that, it's because it's, it, it reinforces unequal power relations. How can we see each other as equals when you're bearing a gun and I'm fearing for my life? You are already at an advantage in front of me. You know, like that's why, out of the many other reasons, but specifically, um, once, you know, once again, connected to what we said earlier of unequal power relations. Okay, lastly, I want to spend this very much, but um, I hope that you like this episode. I, I'm feeling very cool talking about all this. I'm, I'm, I'm so excited. I hope that you stay here. Um, lastly, I just want to address the COVID-19 impact on the models of feminist foreign policy. We saw it with the Great Reset from the United Nations. We saw it with um, the way that states were closing their borders, were isolating themselves. But we also saw it with the pauses and the uh, program restructure or the policy restructure of the models of feminist foreign policy. We saw as well um, a major focus on seeking gender equality through aid areas. Um, with exception, <laughs> we have to put it here, with exception of vaccines and, you know, COVID-19 medicaments and, and, and more, um, and leaving areas such as defense, commerce, and diplomacy almost intact without continuing the feminist values, something that Daniela Sepulveda in the pandemic underscores the need for a feminist foreign policy article published at the Gender Policy Report very well explained. I will list it down below in the description box. She shared many insights on the different, uh, um, how is it, uh, actions taken by these governments that had feminist foreign policies. Um, also, we saw an unequal distribution of resources from domestically with France specifically on a, um, how gender violence increased um, due to quarantine levels and all the criticisms of how can you lead a feminist foreign policy outside on the world and wanting you know gender equality for everybody when you know you are not this time you know like assigning resources or helping combat gender the increase in gender violence within your own borders. That's a whole conversation to have. The tensions, uh, the rising tensions on diplomatic relations and the presence of new actors, a whole conversation on new wars that nobody wants to talk about because everybody wants to focus on how beautiful proposals are, etc. That's uh, given, that's taking place and mainstream media and many of us are not even aware about these new wars are taking place. Um, the colonial practices that we see are getting reinforced and reinstated in discourses, in um, um, uh, support, like which countries I'm going to support, which others are not, what are the zones of influence or the spheres of influence that I'm more interested in helping now than before because it's gonna help me in the future you know like all that conversation realist theory is taking place here so um for those of you that are researching on feminist foreign policy models please take a look my recommendations please take a look on not only the individuals you know like who's leading what but actually the behavior that's leading to the movement of feminist foreign policy because the behavior itself is very manly masculine and um how is it um realist dominated uh, through realist lenses some feminist models feminist foreign policy models are being implemented and that's worrisome and that's something that a lot of people don't want to talk about because, you know, um, there are many dynamics taking place. I'm not even going to start today, um, which is why I love to do, you know, um, live webinars. I'm not that good on recording 
you know, webinars without people because I think these are conversations that need to happen. And um, yeah, anyway. Um, also, the rising of militarization, and we have addressed that here in the podcast. Um, how you know, global um, the global budget, military budget around the world has tripled since the pandemic, and it's going to increase not only you know insecurity domestically but internationally as well. Um, the other conversation to have is how global health um, has not necessarily been predominant on feminist foreign policy models beyond the whole conversation on sexual and reproductive rights, um, you know, talking about access to maternal and child health or to, you know, um, combat diseases or good nutrition or food or water or clean water, you know, like all those things that are also part of our health and mental health, etc. That's not being addressed on a feminist foreign policy. Um, models, which, you know, also leads a whole talk on what are the state's responsibility and, you know, should states that have feminist foreign policy solve every issue in other parts of the world? That's something to explore too. If you love to learn more about um, feminist theory, feminist foreign policy, etc., I invite you to check all the interviews that we have featured so far in this podcast. We have featured on episode 12, Marisa Conway. She is the co-founder and co-director of the Center for Feminist Foreign Policy in the UK on how feminist foreign policy is transforming world affairs. It's an incredible conversation. I invite you to check all the work that they are doing. Um, we also have featured an interview with Isabella Esquivel-Ventura on Mexico's feminist foreign policy. That's also on episode 47. I invite you to check it out. We interview Mario Mesmer on how to incorporate gender perspectives in think tanks, episode 59, not only in terms of, um, you know, subjects or topics of study, but also in the way that, you know, work environments can be inclusive, can be gender equal. That's a whole conversation to have. And also check out the episodes 21 and 97 on why feminist theory matters in IR and feminist foreign policy in India, a review of the Cuber 9 initiative report. I also invite you to check all the work that Cuber 9 initiative is doing um, as well with Global South Voices, not only to talk about FFP in India, but also in Nepal. So I invite you to check the incredible work that they have been doing. Um, that's it for today. I don't have more to share. Um, I hope that you like this episode. Please be sure to follow us on Instagram at womenhood underscore IR. Share your, your feedback with us. Um, also, be sure to check out our Patreon page on our community. With your support, you continue helping our platform grow. And if you love to learn more about feminist foreign policy in the Spanish language, our virtual course will close doors on September 16th. It's already more than 20 hours of content. We have incredible classes, not only on pers uh, feminist perspectives on women, peace and security, feminist theory, foreign policy models, but also uh, post-colonial feminism, decolonial feminism, and um, eco uh, feminist economics, <laughs> um, and the case study of Hawaii, and many more. Uh, anyway, I thank you so much for listening up to this point. Um, looking forward to learning more about your thoughts. Um, thank you so much. Talk to you soon.